Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very honored to be part of your discussion group uh, talk series, but also a bit sad that I can be in a beautiful room with green tablecloth. I'm not sure actually if you're sitting there right now, but I remember uh, when I was in Oxford in 2000, in 2020, before the pandemic, uh, the, the discussion group events were held there. So I'm very excited to talk to you today and very grateful for the opportunity to discuss this topic with you and maybe even um, to listen to your stories related to the uh, issues I cover in my essay. <clears throat> and I hope some of you had the chance to take a look at the paper but I realized that perhaps uh, many of you have already uh, very little time for extra reading. So in, in that case, um, no worries. I will go through some points of the paper in this presentation and I'm sure we can still have a very fruitful conversation afterwards. And uh, even if you had no chance to, to, to read the piece. But if you did, I would be, uh, I would very much appreciate your feedback. So as for those who read the paper, you might probably notice that it's quite egocentric uh, as it mostly based on my personal experiences. And it also overlooks a lot of problems inherent to the, to the field of international law, such as class inequality, perspectives of LGBTQI people and, and many more. But I hope you can apologize, apologize me for this. Uh, for the submissions. When I started writing this piece, <clears throat> I felt confident to speak only about the experiences I had or about experiences of my close friends or colleagues. Uh, but I tried to also to cover general and well-known problems that exist in international legal academia and practice. And before I turn <clears throat> to my personal reflections in this presentation, I will also touch upon them and I'm sure uh, you will also have a lot to say in the discussion afterwards, as I assume most of you um, <clears throat> can connect with at least one of the challenges I describe. And the first, <clears throat> the first substantive part of, uh, of the paper focuses on the identification of problems that currently exist in, in the field of international law. And most of them covered the lack of diversity um, within the field, and, and, and these problems are definitely not new. And the challenge of what, uh, the challenge of what I call the WWM phenomenon is still present in international law. And in my view, <clears throat> it still poses a lot of uh, obstacles for the development uh, for the development of the field. And yes, international law is still Western, wild, white, and male. And like many other spheres uh, and professions, international law has been developed, uh, predominantly developed by um, male elites and focused mostly on developed regions. But the field of international law is kind of special, uh, at least for me. It is. It is international. And for me, this word means diverse and inclusive. And therefore, I think many will agree that WWM alters the very essence of international law. 
And as I write in the paper, it is not easy to detect these problems from the very beginning of, uh, of entering uh, to the field. Uh, for instance, when I studied uh, international law in my second year of my law studies, I read ICJ decisions, uh, we went through some of the most important treaties, we referred to textbooks available in our library, and for me, it was all normal. I have never questioned the teaching method of my professors. I never asked questions like who sits on the bench, uh, on the ICJ's bench, or where does the author of this textbook, uh, textbook come from, or what is the gender balance among the International Law Commission's uh, members, and so forth. Obviously, uh, I could have been more progressive and, and discovered this on my own, but but I was not. I was not, and I stopped blaming myself for this. And the more time I spent in the field, the more I understand that so much still depends on how and what we teach, uh, what we teach students, law students, and um, what examples we show them, what approaches we um, introduced to them. And I guess the lack of critical methodology of my professors was also uh, key in my perception of international law and, um, and my inability to look at it critically. But I would like to return to this point uh, a bit later again. And <clears throat> the next challenge I describe is actually very related to WWM. And I will explain in a minute why. <clears throat> Our field uh, becomes more and more competitive every year and it's already impossible to follow who is doing what and uh, it became impossible to keep up with all the publications of different authors in zillion journals, edited volumes, special issues, etc, etc. And the overproduction uh, made us rely only on the names we know. And we see the names we already know much more often because those who verify the quality of the scholarly work are very often those coming uh, from exactly same academic circles. And in this tsunami of publications, we pick the authors uh, already verified either by us or by our more senior uh, colleagues. <clears throat> and. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, and this leads to the problem that we read again and again only about the Western perspectives of international law. However, a closer look at this tsunami reveals another problem. Women are still largely excluded. And uh, I recently read a book uh, which is called In My Words. Uh, it is a compilation of selected essays excerpts from judgments and the speeches and the lectures given by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And on multiple occasions, she brings up the issues of, uh, of women in law. And in one of her latest lectures, um, she said, um, she talked about positive developments uh, of the gender equality at universities and international institutions. But still, um, 
the giving by Ginsburg numbers of women at law faculties, courts, law firms, um, they, they were not comparable to the number of men. And Ginsburg's essay was, uh, the, the, her speech, I think it was written more than 10 years ago, but even, even today we still see that um, <clears throat> tenured professors are mostly men, high-ranking international law journals publish visibly more men than women. Men tend to cite men, although there are women uh, researching the same questions and so on and so forth. And this is very important because those who publish and present at conferences also speak international law. And <clears throat> academics and, um, <clears throat> and the scholarship they produce is vital for the development of the field. <clears throat> uh, because academia, um, uh, because academics are often the ones taking up positions of judges, arbiters, advocates, leading councils, uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, <clears throat> not less important, the work products of uh, academics are considered to be a subsidiary source of international law. And these materials are also passed on future generations of uh, international lawyers and excluding women uh, from publishing and, and raising their voice might be extremely damaging for the future perceptions of international law simply because it might become severely outdated and, and, and never catch up with the, with the world realities. And uh, for instance, the recent study made by your colleague, and I think she's, uh, she's here, I saw her in the, in the list of participants, Talida Diaz. So uh, thank you very much for doing this. And I'm referring this in my paper, as you probably um, already saw. <clears throat> so uh, Talida uh, made a study about the two biggest publishing houses in the field of international law. And her studies uh, showed that out of 65 authors who published with the Oxford University Press since 1988, only 18 were female, while out of 141 uh, authors who published with Cambridge University Press, only 54 were uh, women since 1997. And the very similar dynamics can also be traced in uh, major international law related journals. <clears throat> the quality scholarship is still heavily male and there are multiple, um, there are multiple factors to, uh, that result in such unequal representation of uh, gender in academia. And one of which is the Mm, lack of time caused by unequal uh, care responsibilities, which also pushes um, women to reject working on journal articles as they require more, more time and resources, and instead focus on shorter and easier to publish um, pieces like book chapters or conference papers. And the childcare <clears throat> also impacts a woman's ability to travel to conferences and, and build networks, both of which is uh, very uh, important for promoting her work and enhancing, enhancing the chances to, to climb the career ladder. But obviously the major problem uh, still remains harassment in its, uh, in its various forms. 
the picture uh, of the international legal practice does not look much better. Only four women in comparison with 104 men sat on the bench of the International Court of Justice since its very inception. And the International Law Commission shows even a worse picture where out of 229 members, there are only seven women. And although the situation with gender parity in UN, uh, human rights organs and mechanisms seems a bit better, still higher positions at the, at the majority of these bodies are being held by men and including uh, mandates of special rapporteurs uh, where the female appointment, sorry, it was, it was this slide, uh, the female appointment was, uh, the female appointment rate is just 18%. And uh, women remain underrepresented in law firms practicing international law as well. For instance, uh, McKinsey recently analyzed its gender representation in senior management teams <clears throat> and corporate board uh, in 15 countries and found out that uh, the average percentage of uh, females equals 50% only. And in my view, <clears throat> but, uh, but also I think uh, most of you uh, agree with this, um, with that, that this segregation within the field and all the imbalances and inequalities, um, they heavily damage the development of the field. And we, as educators, as lawyers, as lawmakers, as, as consultants, um, and so forth, we can challenge this status quo and renavigate the ship uh, under the flag of international law. And in the second part of my essay, I move to the problems I have had so far in my career path. So please allow me to elaborate a bit on my personal experiences in becoming uh, an international lawyer, uh, although it's, it's not very scholarly and scientific, but maybe it might be of interest to someone. So as you probably understood from reading the paper, uh, I was born, raised and educated in Kyrgyzstan, a small post-Soviet country with not, um, with not a very strong international law profile, if I may say so. And um, <clears throat> seizing the opportunity of this uh, presentation and instead of telling you about Kyrgyzstan and uh, about its uh, international law approaches, I will just show you a few pictures and maybe they will trigger your further interest in the, uh, in the country and maybe you can uh, ask me bilaterally afterwards. And in my essay, I try to illuminate problems that exist in Central Asian law schools and what um, might actually push me to seek a job abroad. First, I felt that my academic freedom is uh, limited by the government and um, the Ministry of Education hasn't changed its policies uh, and, and its standards of legal education since the, the independence of Kyrgyzstan. But to graduate, we all uh, had to uh, follow them. And another problem uh, is that international law in, in the post-Soviet space is 
perceived as something not very legal, uh, but rather political. And thus international law tracks are um, uh, heavily marginalized in, in law schools. And I think it also reflected in the decision making, it is also reflected in the decision making of um, ministries of education as they decide on required uh, training for law students. And in many um, public law schools, international law is not a, is not a um, mandatory class. Uh, I, I know that it's also inherent to some of the legal <clears throat> education in, in also in the law schools in the global north. Um, in the US, for instance, it's not a required class in, in the majority of schools. Uh, but, uh, but the system is still different. We study law four years or five years or six years. And I think if you expand the legal education for that many years, you have to include international law in this. So in addition, uh, law schools in Central Asia are very isolated. And we use mostly books which were written by um, Soviet authors decades ago, and uh, also the approach which is taken in our region. But um, I also heard that also from other countries uh, that it's done in other countries as well. Um, I think this approach is weird because you have to learn by heart uh, these books to pass the exam. And this obviously did not return uh, it did not result in my capacity to um, to critically think, and I find it I find it a completely obsolete and false policy that causes stagnation and demotivation to rethink international law. So, how I, a young mediocre young uh, mediocre female uh, international lawyer, landed in Germany. First of all, I believe that I was just lucky as uh, I was in the right place in the right time. But also, I guess it was my stubbornness to prove uh, to all those who tried to convince me that international lawyer is not a real profession. And then it's better that uh, uh, I start learning the civil code and, and analyze uh, contracts. So I was very hesitant to give up because especially because I truly believed in the power of international law. And don't get me wrong, I still, I still do believe uh, in its power. Uh, but when it came <clears throat> to uh, the job search, I was stuck, to put, it, to put it softly. The only job in international law I was able to find uh, was to stay at my university and to teach international law there. Uh, but I'm very grateful for this experience because it gave me the chance to grasp the, the, uh, what happens in academia behind the curtain, so to say. And I learned that uh, even in a, at a private university, things are extremely bureaucratic and, and the notion of freedom of education is very elusive. So to be honest, <clears throat> I always wanted to study abroad because I had this idea of being cosmopolitan and to um, learn other cultures uh, and how these cultures develop and so on and so forth. But I had no opportunity for this early in my uh, long life. 
But as I mentioned, I think I'm very uh, lucky person. I'm a very lucky person. And, uh, and later I got my scholarship offers to study abroad. And of course, without this experiences, I would never be uh, able to get to the Institute like Max Planck. So unfortunately, I have no strategies to share with the younger colleagues. Uh, just, just sometimes you need more time to get things you want. And coming back uh, to, the, to the paper, the third part is uh, kind of bridging the first section about the existing problems and uh, the second about my own experiences. And the section D focuses on the problems on, uh, uh, of how to deal with language uh, barriers while producing legal scholarship. And I guess we all uh, heard the phrase mm, publish or perish. I think it's a, it's a common problem for international law scholars, both from the global south and global north. And um, yet for the southerners, this problem has a different scale. Um, I think it's much harder to get published in top international law journals if you write not uh, in a special um, North American or European uh, style. And of course, if your um, uh, English language skills are, um, are limited, obviously you also face some hurdles uh, in this process. <clears throat> Obviously, the language problems are systematic problems inherent to the national policies of teaching foreign languages um, and law in general. But relearning how to write according to new standards takes a lot of time and energy and, uh, and also effort. Um, so I obviously don't uh, claim here that we don't need a common language to, to communicate with one another. Uh, of course, of course we do, we do need a, a language, but maybe there are ways on how we can minimize the collateral damage, so to say, of the fact that we all come from different regions and cultures, including writing cultures. Uh, and finally, the last part of the paper focuses on how um, international lawyers can help each other to overcome some of the challenges and move uh, towards a better field of international law. And <clears throat> I argue that the majority of described problems should be a concern of multiple actors, including academic institutions, international organizations, and, um, and of course states. And I acknowledge that uh, this is not in our hands to uh, in, not in our hands as individual uh, international lawyers to change the past and the historical narratives uh, that we've been taught um, or to force national governments to rearrange their policies which would be international law oriented. But I believe that we as a global community um, the global community of academics and practitioners, we can help at least each other to make uh, less toxic, inclusive and diverse. And the, the first things as educators, um, we as educators and, and uh, 
and maybe others as mentors can do is to <clears throat> decolonize uh, international law syllabus. Because it is in our hands to rethink uh, what kind of international law we teach and, uh, and we teach in law schools in both uh, periphery and, and the center. So third world, indigenous, feminism, queer approaches to international law as, the, as, um, as well as perspectives that focus on gender, uh, focus on race, class, I think they should find their place in our syllabi. And this will facilitate the uh, ability of students to articulate different approaches to international law, which will help future lawyers to transform the rules that were once written by white men from the West. And uh, it is also important that we accessibly explain the scheme of academic publishing and that top journals are not only um, are not the only uh, and sometimes not the best places to raise your voice and um, also editors of top journals in their turn um, must communicate with potential authors and find balance with regard to the writing styles and cultures. And in, um, it is also important that these editorial teams are uh, diverse in, in, in various terms. Uh, also, the, the Englishness or the Frenchness of the international law field uh, is likely to stay unchallenged, uh, I think. Um, and institutions should start translating the most important materials in uh, peripheral languages, but also I think the other way around. The, this would facilitate the inflow of new approaches, not uh, only to uh, the periphery, but also on, on the other hand, um, in the Western uh, international law academia. And uh, in conclusion, <clears throat> a bit about the challenges uh, of my suggestions, so to say, and things that I overlook in the paper, and uh, not only in the paper, um, in my personal self-reflections. Um, what I just said in this presentation is not innovative. Uh, these are not innovative solutions uh, for uh, existing problems. But by writing this piece, I first wanted to exercise self-reflexivity and what obstacles I had on my own way. And I think this was a great exercise as it allowed me to uh, reflect on my background uh, and the current situation in the field uh, in general, to go deeper to, into some questions, to talk to people. And uh, yes, most importantly, I heard so many stories from uh, other early career scholars, and um, but not only from early career, also senior scholars um, and practitioners. Uh, and I was really happy to, to see that people um, not stop, but they're on the way uh, to um, stop being ashamed of their origin and educational backgrounds, of their accents, of uh, uh, of uh, how they look like and so on and so forth. And I also got to know so many scholars whose work 
um, focuses on epistemological roots of international law and how we should decolonize uh, the syllabus. And um, I believe that this issue took uh, one of the most central um, places in the international law domain uh, right now. And I want to believe that the, that the change is not, is not far away. But I fully acknowledge that I do not cover any solutions on how to eliminate these problems in international legal practice, for instance. And I struggle with this exactly because of the exercise of self-reflexivity. And uh, at the current stage, my main occupation is in academia. And um, I got to know a few things about it in, in this couple of years. So <clears throat> I could only... Um, cover this um, I could only cover academia uh, academia because because I could speak uh, from my perspective and I think um, if we want to make a change this change should be both in academia and practice uh, but for this uh, but for uh, offering any uh, steps uh, how to do it in in uh, in the practice I, I lack I lack insights and experience so maybe uh, you have ideas with this regard, and I will be happy to uh, to hear them. And also, <clears throat> uh, one of the major problems is whether peripheral scholars who made it to the global north uh, have to return and espouse international law in their regions. And to be honest, I don't know. I don't know if they, uh, if they, me, me included if I uh, should do this or want to do this. And the first, because there is a risk um, that by doing this, we will reinforce the existing hierarchies between the global north and the global south scholars, as it might seem that we uh, got to know how uh, they mostly rich and, and white people do, and trying to reinstall uh, reinstall this in the in the countries of the global south. And <clears throat> second, I'm not sure if uh, a returned person can do more and can can perform better um, than the one who stayed, because um, um, because if you are uh, committed to promote uh, alternative and critical approaches to international law from um, your more privileged perspective, so to say, if you're staying uh, at, the, at the institution based in the global uh, north, I think maybe you even have more power and because you have more resources, uh, more time uh, for doing this, and <clears throat> maybe that's, uh, that's also the solution. And uh, um, I guess there is a lot of room for discussion um, about this, and I hope you can also share your opinions on that. And on this note, um, I want to thank you all for your attention and for the invitation. And I hope it was not too boring and my voice <laughs> didn't disturb you too much. And I uh, really look forward to your questions 